Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Supplemental, the Epic Ecstatic Epic Tassus, Gregory of Nyssa, Salvation, and the Life of Moses. You've heard me say a couple times now that Gregory is a thinker that people are still reading today, and are reading for reasons that don't always have a lot to do with his Trinitarian theology, because he was such a creative thinker across so many different parts of the Church's doctrine and mission. We are now coming to one of the very biggest of those ideas. So here we go, y'all. It's time to look into one of Gregory's most famous books, and to look at some of his most fascinating and controversial ideas. That book is The Life of Moses, which is a wonderful, fascinating text in which to observe two of the key themes in Gregory's thought, the structure of Christian life and his celebrated doctrine of epictasis. In order to understand this text, though, you have to understand something very important about the life of Moses, which is that it is not really about the life of Moses. You might be expecting Gregory to do a modern biography, starting with Moses' birth and delving into his psychology and his upbringing and interviewing his hangers-on to get some kind of awesome tell-all revelation that he could market on all of the talk shows. But he doesn't do that. Because, of course, nobody wrote modern biographies until, you know, modernity. Or you might be expecting him to give you a blow-by-blow of all the awesome things Moses did kind of like Athanasius with his blockbuster bestseller, Life of Antony. But he doesn't do that either. I mean, why should he? You've already got the narrative written down in the Bible. You've got the history. It's a perfectly good book. Just read that. Why do you want to make Gregory write it all down again? Paper's expensive, man. Just read your Bible. In fact, Gregory tells us from the beginning what he is really trying to do. And what he is really trying to do is to give us a sense of the perfect life. Now, it's not possible to see the perfect life exactly because, well, perfect virtue is infinite, and we can't see the infinite. But we can get a really good idea about the perfect life by looking at the lives of the saints. And that is exactly what Gregory wants to do by looking at Moses' life. It's not a biography. He's not really trying to tell us about Moses. What he does is he reviews all of the events in Moses' life and explains their spiritual inner significance. I'm not going to go point by point through all of those explanations because, well, that would take like an hour and a half, and this is a supplemental, and we all have one life to live. Besides, you should really buy the book and read it yourself. It's super good. What I am going to do is explain the underlying structure behind Gregory's explication. In other words, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what he comes to think the perfect life looks like. So for Gregory, Moses' journey towards God consists of three distinct stages, purgation, illumination, and union. This is, in fact, the way that every soul comes to be close to God. So let's take those three stages in order. First, there is a purgation phase, which you will also hear called the purification phase sometimes. As you might imagine, this phase is mostly about turning away from sin. For example, why does God tell Moses to take off his sandals at the burning bush because he's on holy ground? Well, because those sandals represent the old sinful life, and those have to be taken off before the Christian life, properly speaking, can begin. 
As you might imagine, this phase is not always a lot of fun to experience. The process of giving up one's old life, one's old habits, can be difficult and painful. The more ingrained our spiritual habits are, the more difficult it's going to be for us to break them. But it doesn't stay that way forever. Eventually, we become accustomed to our new way of living and realize that it's actually better than our old sinful M.O. This phenomenon, too, is symbolized in Moses' life. The water in the desert that they have to drink is bitter until wood is thrown into it, which symbolizes how the wood of the cross transforms the bitterness of our lives into the sweet hope of glory. It's an analogy worthy of even the most talented youth pastor. That's right, even in the 4th century, the road to Nicaea was brought to you by youth pastor jokes. Now, as the virtuous life becomes more and more palatable to us, we begin the second phase of the Christian life, illumination. In illumination, the Christian steadily grows in the knowledge of God, but isn't ready for direct contact with the divine yet. For Gregory, this is symbolized by the burning bush. You remember the story. Moses is in the desert, just herding sheep and stuff. And then he sees a bush that is on fire, but is not consumed. It just sits there burning without turning to ash, kind of like those virtual fireplaces you see in homes nowadays. But Moses, not having access to home and garden television in the desert, decided to step aside and look at this unparalleled sight. And then he hears the voice of God speaking from the bush and telling him what to do. Now that is, of course, a pretty impressive thing. Gregory points out, though, that there is a difference between encountering the voice of God and encountering God himself. Moses hears the voice, but doesn't encounter God himself. And this is basically the way it goes for most of his life. God talks, he listens. And through it all, he slowly grows in virtue and confidence and in his general awareness of God. But it all happens through intermediaries. He gets confidence in the miracles God does, in the words that God speaks, but those are intermediaries. They aren't the divine nature itself. And for most Christians, who are not quite as close and personal with the supernatural as Moses, those intermediaries are the church, the Bible, trusted spiritual teachers, and the like. Listening to them, learning about God through them, that's the bread and butter of Christian spiritual life. But it's not all lights and intermediaries and a steadily developing sense of virtue accompanied by slow, steady progress towards God. No, my friends. There is a third stage of the Christian life, and it is what everyone is striving for. Union with God. This final phase, this union, is where Gregory's celebrated notion of epictosis comes into play. It's like the sumptuous mascarpone cheese of his theology, marrying beautifully with the espresso-infused ladyfinger of the unknowability of the divine essence and the silky custard of his theological anthropology to create the extraordinary tiramisu-like delicacy that is his vision of heaven, his vision of union with God. Confusing culinary metaphors aside, what exactly is the doctrine of epictosis? Of course, I haven't given a better translation of it because epictosis is just so much fun to say. The clearest example we get of it is from the life of Moses itself. You may remember that something very interesting happens toward the end of Moses' life. He asks to see God face to face. That is the reward he wants for his many years of faithful service. And God replies, no. Now, God just isn't doing this to be contrary. God tells Moses that no mortal can see his face and live. 
So instead, God offers to show Moses his back, which is a little less lethal to mortal eyes. Thus does Moses behold the form of God more intimately than any mortal before him, yet still not face to face. Gregory tells us this is a model for how union with God happens in our lives. We do not and cannot ever grasp God in God's entirety. For God is infinite and we are finite beings. Even once we are purified of all sin, even once our minds are illuminated, there's just only so much that we can comprehend. So what God offers us is not a once-for-all face-to-face vision. Instead, God offers us a vision of God that simultaneously increases our desire to see more of God. It's kind of the opposite of food. The more food you eat, the less hungry you are, and the less you want the food. But with God, the more of God you see, the more of God you want. And at the very moment of your increased desire, God supplies the extra goodness and vision that you want. You see a new facet of God, something delightful and surprising and joyous, which only increases your desire to see more. And that allows God to give you more. And on and on it goes into infinity. This is the fundamental paradox of worshiping an infinite God as a finite being. Gregory so memorably puts it this way. This truly is the vision of God, never to be satisfied in the desire to see him. Another way to look at it is to say that there is only one part of a human being that is infinite enough to really grasp God, and that is our desire. I don't know if you've noticed this, but human beings are generally pretty hard to keep satisfied. Even after you work for something that you have wanted for years, maybe decades, you get it, and in fairly short order, your mind starts saying, okay, well, what about the next thing? It's hard to hold on to that sense of delight and happiness with any finite thing. We are always longing for more. And what Gregory says is, this is a feature, not a bug. Our yearning for more was only ever designed to be satisfied in the God who can always give us more. And not just give us more in the sense of more of the same old thing that might be boring us, but always has something surprising and delighting and new to show us. How funny it is that after all that effort to put on virtue and put off sin, to be illuminated, to acquire more spiritual senses, building ourselves up and up and up, It is not in our fullness, but in our lack, in our desire, in our yearning, needy creatureliness, begging for love and comfort and being itself that we can never have on our own. It is in that that we most profoundly meet God. Now, you may be hearing that idea and thinking, whoa, I'm going to need some time to process that. If it makes you feel any better, I first learned about this idea seven years ago, and I'm still processing it. From an historical perspective, as we are processing, perhaps the best way to understand all this is to ask, well, what led Gregory to such a creative and profound vision of the union with God? Well, the answer is a little unclear, and it probably has as much to do with Gregory's unique genius as anything else. But there is a good chance that Gregory developed his idea in conversation with who else that titanic polymath of the 3rd century, Origen of Alexandria. We didn't go much into Origen's account of salvation earlier in the podcast because it didn't really matter for the main story, but it does matter here. So here is a very, very abbreviated version of what Origen has to say. 
Origen noticed, like most biblical commentators do, that the first few chapters of Genesis repeat themselves. We have a lovely, perfectly complete account of creation in Genesis chapter 1, and then a few verses into Genesis chapter 2, the whole story starts over again and tells the events in a different order. What gives? Why would the Bible do this? Well, modern scholars will tell you that these are two separate creation narratives that were just stuck side by side in the process of compiling Genesis. Origen took a different approach. He was less interested in how the text came to be and more in the spiritual significance of repeating the creation narrative. In other words, Origen's question wasn't, where did the editors of Genesis get the sources? His question was, what is the Holy Spirit trying to tell us by telling this creation story twice? Origen's conclusion is that the Bible is trying to tell us there were actually two creations. First, God created a universe populated only by rational, immaterial souls. These souls were all perfectly blessed and spent eternity gazing upon the vision of God and having a good time, until they got bored. Yeah, apparently the beatific vision wasn't actually enough to hold their attention, and so they started wandering away from looking at God and getting confused and messing up, and that's how sin came into the world. And so God knew that these souls were going to need a period of education and purification in order to train them to hold their attention to the good. In other words, to not get bored anymore. That's when God created the material world, with various kinds of bodies for the various kinds of souls. Those that only fell a little bit went into angelic bodies, those that really messed up became demons, and those that fell in between landed in a human body like yours or mine. On Origin's scheme, we are all united in our original spiritual mediocrity. The Road to Nicaea, brought to you by Mediocrity. As you probably guessed from the fact that this is a podcast brought to you by a white-bearded guy with a microphone in his second bedroom and too many opinions. Mediocrity. In a world where everything is terrible, meet the bare minimum. Now, Origen's idea of salvation is that through the ministry of Christ and the slow, patient providence of God, over countless ages, all beings will eventually return to their original goodness and once again gaze on God in endless bliss. However, Origen leaves unanswered a crucial question. What if they get bored again? Because after all, it's not like God gets any better after endless ages have run their course. God is perfect from the get-go. There's nothing that could possibly be improved. So has our capacity to enjoy God improved? Well, you'd hope so after those countless years of work. But if God created us perfect at the beginning, how on earth did we get bored in the first place? And can any amount of work or education over those long ages permanently keep us from distraction? Origen never answers these questions to my knowledge. It's not clear that he conceived of the problem. But Gregory did, and part of the genius of Gregory's doctrine of epictasis is he finds a way to square this circle. Now, Gregory does not accept Origen's theory that there's an initial fall of rational souls and that the creation of the material world is a kind of school for fallen souls. But Gregory does recognize the problem that boredom poses for the afterlife. So Gregory essentially says, hey, an infinite God is always going to have more to show us. So once you have attained union with God, God fulfills your desire in such a way as to simultaneously increase your desire. Which means you'll never get bored, because as long as you are being satiated, you are simultaneously being taught to hunger for more. 
the education is not of our attention, but of our desire. And in fact, uses our rapacious desire, our incapacity to stay content with the same old thing as the engine to drive further growth in Christ. Now, most of us probably haven't thought of a scheme of salvation as in-depth as Origen or Gregory have. But the question Gregory is wrestling with is, I think, a pretty common one. What will we do in heaven? Do we just sit around and learn to play harp or something? Won't that get kind of boring? Gregory's doctrine of epictosis instead presents heaven as a never-ending quest for more goodness, truth, and beauty, one that rewards us even as it eludes us. This is the kind of idea that has had serious legs, because some version of Gregory's vision of unending progress has animated Christian visions of the afterlife ever since, even down to the present day. It solves the problem of how a soul could be satisfied with God for all eternity, and it provides a vision of the afterlife that is consistent with the inexhaustible infinity of God. So it's a powerful vision. It's not the only one. There is another way of conceiving the afterlife. St. Augustine envisages redeemed humanity as being rightly ordered humanity. That when we finally got the confusions and the questions and the misplaced affections of life sorted out, when our soul has had all its desires fulfilled and quieted, then we can just rest in the peace of God that passes all understanding. In other words, for St. Augustine, desire is not infinite. Our infinite desire is a consequence of our sin, of our disordered souls. And once we solve that disorder, we are actually able to find rest rather than a never-ending journey. Which vision you prefer, I suspect, has as much to say about your own personal psychology as anything else. Do you rejoice in an eternal, unending quest of ever-increasing delights? Or do you yearn instead for blessed peace, a respite from all that striving and feeling and journeying? Who knows? Perhaps in the mysteries of eternity there is a way that both are fulfilled and both are reconciled. But eternity is not now. And so we must continue our own journey into a different kind of mystery, just what is the deal with this whole Trinity thing? While I can't promise that it will be as gripping and engaging as that epic, ecstatic experience of epic Tacitus, I hope we can continue to fire your interest as we travel this road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Altar Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com. Uh-huh.